long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with disasters, what happened, why it happened, and what we can learn from them. As an anxious person, learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety. As an empath, I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters. Who survived, who didn't, and most importantly, how they lived. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I hate that disasters happen, but since they're gonna, I want to learn from them. Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining me again on the Disaster Queen Podcast. Again, I really mean it when I say that I am beyond thrilled to have you here and that anyone would listen to me at all. So thank you. This is a dream come true. And I have a special surprise for you and a special guest, my podcast guru. My friend Mary Carver is here with me today. I've been on Mary's podcast, which I'll let her tell you about several times, but she also really helped me start this up because she knows so much. So hi, Mary. Welcome. Hello. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. I have no chill about you being here. I'm so excited. So tell the people who you are and a little bit about your podcast. Okay. Well, people, I am a writer and speaker and podcaster. My podcast is called The Couch with Mary Carver, and it is about um, pop culture and why it matters. So I get together on the virtual couch with friends, and we just talk about sometimes the most random of topics related to pop culture, why it matters to us anyway, and we just have a good time. I love being on Mary's podcast. You guys will love it if you check it out. If you love pop culture, TV, movies, music, all the things, entertainment, and how that kind of integrates with the world around us, you will love the couch. So check it out. And thank you so much for being here with me, Mary. Um, how do you feel about disasters, Mary? Well, I tell you what, sometimes I get overwhelmed with all the hard stuff in the world. So current day disasters, I am not a fan of. But historical, like taking a, a look back at things that are not affecting me or my people on this day, you know, it it hits different, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, it's a, I would say it's a real gift of love for you and an act of service for you to be on this podcast with me. So I appreciate it. <laughs> so let's get into the disaster that I chose for us to talk about. And it is the Kansas City Skywalk collapse that occurred in the Kansas City Hyatt on July 17th, 1981. And I chose this because I randomly saw a Seconds to Disaster episode about it on YouTube because when you're me, the Disaster Queen, you randomly search for disasters on YouTube. And I had, I had no idea that it had ever happened. And it's huge. It killed 114 people and injured 200 others in a hotel lobby. It's it's crazy. And I couldn't believe I'd never heard of it. And it took place in Kansas City. And of course, I thought, I know someone who lives in the Kansas City area. You do. Let's see if Mary will discuss this with me. So do you have any, how much knowledge do you have of this disaster? And, and what's your relationship to this disaster, if any, Mary? Okay, I have very little knowledge of it, to be honest, because when it happened, I was just a wee babe. Um, Same. Yes. So 1981. So I was three years old. I did live in Kansas City proper at the time with my parents, but uh, this might surprise you. They were not um, like going to events at the Hyatt type people. 
So yeah, no personal connection to it. However, I will say my very first um, grown-up job after college was planning fundraising events for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And my our executive director, my boss, um, was very familiar with this incident. And so she would sometimes bring it up. Uh, she had been planning fundraising events for a long time. She was married to a Royals uh, player. Yeah. And so they did fancy things. They knew fancy people in fancy places. Um, and so sometimes when we were talking about possible venues for events, her experience with this would kind of color the decisions that we made, even though those of us like in the trenches, the, you know, in our twenties planning the events were like, what are you even talking about, Jana? We've never even heard of this. Or like, eventually we had heard of it because she would talk about it, but yeah, I don't have any personal tie to it, but it did kind of affect in a small way. That's my first really job. interesting. I can see where she's coming from, knowing what I know about it now. So right now, this hotel still exists. It's a Sheraton now. Have you ever been there? Okay. So is it downtown? It or is, is it... at the Crown Center. Yes. Okay. Downtown at the Hallmark Crown Center. Well, I've been at Crown Center a million times. Um, it's like a festive, fancy shopping center. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like the, the thing to do is to go there at Christmas time. Okay. And there are skywalks. <clears throat> There are skywalks connecting Crown Center to the Weston Hotel and to Union Station. Yeah, there is a Weston at Crown Center as well. So they have the two big hotels, um, the Hyatt, which is now the Sheraton, and the Weston. So interesting that there's still skywalks, but I imagine they're they're a lot different because they're outdoor connectors, right? I mean, fingers crossed. I know, seriously. <laughs> well, I'll tell you they are a lot different because a lot of things changed after this. So let's tell the people what happened so they can kind of get clued in here. Okay. So the Kansas City Hyatt was built as part of a massive project that we've mentioned called the Hallmark Crown Center. So Hallmark Greeting Cards is in Kansas City, headquartered in Kansas City. And in the late 60s, they started buying up land and wanting to revitalize this area of downtown Kansas City. And they did a great job. Like Mary said, it's a very fancy shopping center. It's kind of the place to be. So they built that. Um, The Hall family, who is the Hallmark people, they built that. So the 40-story Hyatt was going to be kind of the center of this. And it was built starting in May 1978. And it was kind of part of a 70s construction boom that was helping to lift the United States out of a recession. It was um, what we call fast-tracked, which is code for built in a hurry and not as well as it should have been in the late 70s to try to get all these construction jobs. Basically, they would start working on the bottom of the plans of the building before like the top of the plans were even completed. So because of this, it started in May 1978 construction, and it was opened uh, July 1st, 1980. And during its construction, actually, the roof collapsed. The atrium, the huge lobby with the big glass ceiling, the roof collapsed during construction. I don't know if you knew that, Mary. No. And also during construction, separate from the roof incident, there was one worker killed in a random kind of freak accident while the Hyatt was being built. So it did not have a super auspicious start. Hmm. Um, But nonetheless, it was completed and opened on July 1st, 1980. As I mentioned, its big centerpiece was this giant atrium, the lobby. It had a glass roof and it had three glass and concrete skywalks suspended from the ceiling that connected the second, third, and fourth floors from the north to the south wings. So the second 
floor walkway was directly underneath the fourth floor walkway. The third floor walkway was staggered to the other side of the lobby. So second and fourth were right above each other, or the fourth was right above the second, which is going to be important for our story. Um, the walkways were 120 feet long and they weighed 64,000 pounds each. That's a lot. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a lot, but what are those <laughs> walkways? Right. <laughs> I mean, I have no, I'm really like not great with like distances and weights and stuff, but it seems like I definitely would not want to be under something that was 64,000 pounds when it came crashing down. So, yeah. So the Hyatt was a big success and every Friday starting from even its opening week, it had on Friday night, a tea dance. Do you know what the heck is even a tea dance, Mary? I don't know what that is. I didn't either. In my notes, I have tea dance WTF, which isn't very... <laughs> I was like, what is this? Like letter T or tea like you drink? Tea like the drink. So okay. I did some research on a tea dance and they were started in the late 1800s in England, of course. They were late afternoon dances where tea was served and sometimes they were preceded by a garden party. But in the United States, um, uh, in the 1900s, they became like big band events. And so you would still get drinks, but like the Hyatt had this huge lobby. They had, open, you know, the bars open so people could buy drinks and they had these big dances every Friday from 5 to 8 p.m. And they were very well attended. On the night of July 17th, 1981, you're not going to believe this. Maybe this says something about Kansas City that I don't know. Or it's just <laughs> the 1980s. There were 1,600 people at this tea dance, Mary. What? 1,600 people at a dance, an adult dance. <laughs> With big band music on a Friday night. Gosh, if I didn't know that this was leading up to a horrible disaster, that would make my heart feel so warm and fuzzy. It is kind of cute, isn't it? Yes, it's adorable. Um, and there was like there wasn't always a competition, but there was a dance competition that night. So that was maybe part of the reason the crowd was so big, because usually they would have like seven hundred to, you know, twelve hundred people, but this was a pretty big crowd that night. So. The tea dances were really popular and the Hyatt was the place to be at Hallmark Crown Center. And unfortunately, it was very crowded that night on July 17th, 1981. So are you ready for what happened? I don't know if I am ready, but <laughs> hit me with it. Okay. So the dance was from 5 to 8 at about 7.05 p.m. while the, the band played Duke Ellington's Satin Doll, which is a song I do not know. I should, probably should have listened to it before this. Um... About 60 people were standing on either the second or fourth floor skywalks watching the dance below. And then there were hundreds of couples dancing. There were people, you know, in the bar line, lounging at the different seating around the lobby, watching the dance. But about 7.05 p.m., attendees heard a loud popping noise and a crack. And then the fourth floor walkway dropped several inches, paused a second, and then completely collapsed on top of the second floor walkway. So... They both crashed to the lobby. This is 128,000 pounds of glass and concrete that crashed to the lobby floor where there were about, you know, 1,600 people. So one survivor said that after the sound of the skywalks falling, there was just like a complete stunned silence for a second. And then the screaming began. So there were scores and scores of people trapped under this heavy debris and others that were injured by the debris but not trapped. And it was just a really terrible scene. As you can imagine, I mean, overall, 
you know, spoiler alert, 114 people were killed. I already said that and 200 injured. So that's a pretty good percentage of the people that were there. And um, the first police officer that arrived at the scene, his name was Vince Ortega. He was only 26 years old. And he Mm -hmm. said that the, the call that came over the radio was like, you know, maybe like someone had fallen down an escalator, like it was really vague. And so he was not prepared for what he walked into. And he said people were running out, bleeding from the head. And this is a quote from him. I'm, I've got several articles and a book I read about this, which will be in the show notes. But he says, when I went in, I saw a dead body right away. The rubble had flattened the body out. I could tell it was a woman because she had a dress on. There was this one gentleman who was underneath the rubble. And he had his arm sticking out from the from the rubble. So my officer friend grabbed his hand and started to pull him out. And his arm just came off. And my friend just dropped it and walked out the door. He actually never came back. He never returned to the police department. I got to say that would do it for me as well. How about you? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would be out after that. <laughs> That's a bad day on the job. These, this, this whole story, I mean, I have a ton of respect for first responders, but this whole story really gives me more mad respect because they they endured some terrible things and back in the 80s like you know we weren't talking about ptsd and mental health care for our first responders and these people really went through it and you know didn't really get the mental health care that they needed afterwards so i'm glad things are different today in that respect although i'm sure it could be improved so that's what happened and it was crazy unexpected and really unprecedented i think you know rescue workers really had their work cut out for them because what do you do when this happens this is not like something anyone had encountered before so another thing that happened when the sky walls collapsed collapsed they broke the sprinkler system and they broke some pipes and so water started flooding into the lobby and so some people that were trapped under the rubble were now um not just <laughs> trapped and being crushed they were also in danger of drowning so talk about something going from bad to worse. This is terrible. Rescue workers had to stop trying to free people and start trying to get the water out of the lobby. So they finally were able to force the lobby doors to stay open. And this allowed all the water to drain to drain out. So in the show, um, Seconds from Disaster, which I mentioned, um, it's a Nat Geo show, which you can see on YouTube. The um, one survivor on, on that talks about nearly drowning in addition to being crushed. And it's like, you had to be laying under that rubber, rubble going, like, are you freaking serious? <laughs> like, 64,000 wow. pounds of rubble is on top of me, and now I'm going to drown? So okay. it definitely went from bad to worse, but they got that under control. And then they jumped into action, freeing those they could free. For those they couldn't free, people were giving um, IVs and um, pain meds and all kinds of things that they, you know, could do to keep them comfortable until the heavy equipment was brought in so that they could free those that were still alive. And eventually, of course, they had to free the dead that were trapped underneath as well. So as I said, in the end, over 200 people were injured and 114 people died. And trigger warning, there is, I should have given a trigger warning at the beginning of this, but there is, I mean, I'm not going to be graphic, but a a lot of people died. And there is the youngest victim. So there's death of a child was 11 years old. And she was there with her dad and they both, they both died. This was a very bad tragedy that affected families like crazy. For instance, 18 husbands and wives died together that night. Can Ugh. you imagine? I mean, when you, when we get to like why this happened, it just makes you crazy mad. And it had such a big 
big effect on families, which which we'll talk about here in a second. Now that we know what happened, I do want to talk about some of the victims and some of the survivors because the human stories are what are really important about these disasters. The human stories and what we learn from it and how we prevent it from happening again. Are you still yeah. okay, Mary? Are you okay to continue on? I'm I'm good, but this is bad. <laughs> it is bad. This is your city. This is your her your heritage. They said there were so because there were so many people there. There was hardly a person in Kansas City that didn't know someone who had been directly affected. Either someone who was there, right. who died, who had a family member who died or was injured, or a somebody who knew a first responder. is crazy. Yeah. So I mentioned there were 18 husbands and wives. I had some trouble finding stuff about the victims, which makes me crazy when I can't find information about these people because I think their stories deserve to be told. But finally, I found a book about this called Buried Truths by John A. Serrano. And it's really good. I highly recommend it if you want to learn more about this. Um, so here's a few stories that are included in his book. And some that are some, from some articles that I found that are in the show notes. But one husband and wife pair was a newlywed Karen and Eugene Jeter. They were 37 and 48 years old, respectively. And they'd only been married for 16 days. Oh. They'd just gotten back from their honeymoon. And they died together that night. Um, Karen's son from her first marriage, his name is Brent Wright. He was 17 at the time and he had just graduated high school. And since news didn't travel fast, you know, back then, like it does now with texting and social media and everything, he actually didn't find out until the next morning, his dad told him and his sister that his mom and stepfather had been killed. Mm -hmm. And Brent got involved in the Skywalk Memorial, which have you ever been there? I haven't. Okay. It's, I think it's right down at Crown Center by the hotel, but I will double check yeah. on you on that for you if you want to go see it. But he got involved in the Skywalk Memorial Foundation. He's really involved still. So I read a couple articles in which he was featured and he said that's a, a good way to remember his mom. And he also said that something that helped him move forward, which was so sweet, was he remembered having a conversation with her talking about death where she, where, um, she said, you know, what if I'm gone? I want you to, she said, I want you to go live and be happy, but don't forget about me. And he said, as an adult, that really helped him move on. He remembered having that conversation with his mom when he was a teenager and that helped him to move on and live a happy and full life. And also being part of the Skywalk Memorial Foundation has been huge um, for him as well. And he was a big impetus in getting that built. So go check it out, Mary. I was wondering if you had yeah. seen it. So now I know. Gosh, Mary, get it together. Sorry. I know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, it's not exactly like a field trip that you want to take your kids on, I guess, but. That's true. That's true. Uh, yeah. So another victim that passed away was a fire chief named, I don't, and I don't know how to pronounce this, and I'm very sorry in advance, John Tvedten, T-V-E-D-T-E-N. He was 50 years old, and he was a chief on the Kansas City Fire Department, and also the father of six kids, five of them girls, and his daughter said that being the father of so many girls gave this tough firefighter a, a soft spot and he was standing at the bar when the skywalks fell and he was crushed by them and many of the firefighters who came to the scene knew he was there and they were trying to find him and rescue him and they were also trying to keep his son who was a firefighter john jr out of the scene because he had of course responded to help so they um never did find him in the building someone had unbeknownst to them that he had been one of the ones who was carried out early and so his none of his crew found him which i think is kind of a blessing but 
his daughter Jill um, remembered him by saying that he took an enormous amount of pride in his job as a firefighter, and she always looked forward to the warm hugs that he gave her when he would come home from a scene. So that was another huge loss for the community, a fire chief and a father of six. But it really affected people of all ages. I think the tea dance has mostly a kind of an older population type of thing. But there were quite a few people in their 20s and 30s there as well, um, including Jeff Durham, who was 26. And he was a semi-regular at the tea dances. He actually tended bar, and he was um, part of the nightlife in the Westport area of KC. Do you know what Westport is? Can you enlighten us? Yeah, um, yeah it's just where... It's where all the bars are. Okay. You know, <laughs> so he was apparently a social butterfly. Well, so especially back then. Well, I mean, I guess I was not bar hopping in 1981, but um, now we have like our downtown has been totally revitalized. And so there's an entertainment district downtown. But prior to that, like 10, 15 and more years ago, Westport was where there were a lot of bars. So if people wanted to go bar hopping or go out, that's where they would go. Well, that was apparently a big part of his life. He worked there and he was just kind of a fixture on the scene, but he also loved him a tea dance. So he was a okay. semi-regular, they said, at the tea dances. And he survived initially, but he was under heavy debris and physicians actually on the scene. Even one surgeon who was upstairs eating in the hotel restaurant was trying to help him and they decided they were going to have to amputate his leg at the hip to get him out. And I won't go into grisly detail because that's not what we do here, but it was, it, you know, that's another thing like these first responders had to do. They didn't have the right tools and they just made do with what they had and they did oh. get Jeff out, but he unfortunately did pass away at the high, at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so sweet. His parents um, that put on his grave marker, his name, Jeff Emery Durham, and we loved him, but God loved him more. Mm, I hate it. I mean, I it's so it sweet, but I really hate it. So that's you know, what I tell my kids. <laughs> well, apparently that's what they told him too. Uh, my kids make fun of me and my husband for loving. Like they're like, you love that you love death, you love murder, and I don't. That's not the thing. I hate this. I I love hearing about these stories because I think everyone deserves to have their story told and be remembered. But yeah. I really hate that they they happen and that his. Yeah his family's sentiment on his gravestone really like ugh, it hit me hard. So, mm. so as I said, this affected a lot of families. So I have one family story, the Rose family that I want to put in here because it's a, it's one that went both ways. Leonard and Anna Rose were a married couple. They were out with several members of their extended family for a cocktail at the tea dance before they were going to go to Anna's sister's house for dinner. And included in their party were Anna's sister and her brother-in-law, Judy and Bob Bolton, her other sister, Celine Gaffney, and Bob Bolton's sister, Lena Omer. So it was quite the extended family night out. Mm -hmm. And um, Omer and the Boltons were actually visiting from out of town. So bad time to be somewhere where you don't normally live. Um, kind of makes it extra tragic, I think. They yeah. were actually all standing on the second floor skywalk when this happened. So there were about 60 people between the two skywalks. So there were many more people down below that were hurt. But if mm -hmm. you were unlucky enough to be on the second floor skywalk, I mean, that was a really bad place to be because the fourth floor was coming right directly down on top of you. So that's oh. where they were all standing. And both roses, Leonard and Anna, were badly injured. And... um Celine Gaffney, Anna Rose's sister, was also badly injured. 
but Anna's sister Judy Bolton and her husband Bob and his sister Lena Omer were all killed. So it's just another example of how this affected families big time. And, uh, you know, half of them survived and half of them didn't. Um, Leonard Rose was, while well, he was trapped into, in the rubble, he was next to Lena Omer, his brother-in-law's sister. And she was sobbing, he said. And he was trying, he could only move one hand, but he was trying to comfort her by, like, touching her hairline. This is the best he could do. Um, but she passed away anyway with him, right next to him. And he was not rescued for four and a half hours. Can you imagine? I have a fear like I have a mad anxiety disorder, as you know, and I being trapped is one of my major triggers. So this it's interesting that I can do these kind of stories and it's sort of learning from them helps me feel safer and know that this is most likely not going to happen to me. But this is like totally my nightmare being trapped for that long. Um, Leonard and Anna. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say all of this is so uh, even though this happened first. And this happened in my town. Like it's everything you're describing is so reminiscent of 9-11. Yeah. yeah. And so that's, that's what it really brings to mind for me. And just, oh, I don't know. I guess there's no point in that. It's just, that's what I keep thinking of. Well, I think that's what it would bring to mind for us. You know, we were both in our early twenties when 9-11 happened. So yeah. it was the big disaster of our defining disaster of our adulthood, certainly. Um, I think of the Challenger disaster as a defining one of my childhood, but I think that's, it's difficult not to equate any disaster to that and not to think about how it compares. And yeah, definitely a lot of rubble and a lot of being trapped. So I can Mm -hmm. see, I can see how you went there. Um, But Leonard and Anna themselves, married couple, did both recover from their injuries. They both had long hospital stays. And they both lived until really a nice ripe old age. And their daughter said of them, uh, while their bodies have healed and our hearts have come to rest, it remains the single most devastating event of our lifetimes, which I think is very appropriate and very terrible. So the Rose family, I just, my heart, my heart beats a few extra times for them and what they went through. She lost, you know, a sister, a brother-in-law and the her her brother-in-law's sister and there's got to be an amount of guilt that comes with that because they're the ones that invited them to kansas city to stay and go to the hyatt i mean you know obviously it's definitely not their fault but it's just it's a lot to live with for sure survivor's guilt i'm sure was a thing which is another 9-11 thing that you hear about a lot survivor's guilt so okay let's talk about a survivor a pair of sisters like i said this affects families kind of the main point that I got from this. So there were two sisters in their 20s named Rachel and Melanie Hanson that were there. And Rachel was actually an ordained Lutheran pastor. And Melanie was on summer break from Harvard. Um, And Rachel had a date there that night, Dennis McFall. But they were both sisters were directly under the skywalks when they fell, but they were not killed. And Melanie says she was totally unaware that the skywalks even existed. She says, I was totally unaware of the skywalks. I never even saw them. We never even looked. So they hadn't been in the building for very long, I think, when it happened. And she was just kind of looking at all the scene around her and taking in the dancing and the big lobby, but hadn't even looked up yet. And then all of a sudden it's on top of her. Like, I can't imagine. Um, They both had broken backs as well as other injuries. And they both recovered. But interestingly enough, they both had a religious experience while they were trapped. Isn't that weird? Very separate religious experiences, which so I thought that was definitely worth mentioning. Um, Melanie was freed pretty quickly. She says, oh, no, I'm sorry. Rachel was freed pretty quickly. 
And she, but she said that while she was in there, she saw Christ. She said she had a comforting vision, vision of Christ being with her when she was trapped. Mm. And she held on to that and continued to be a Lutheran pastor for the rest of her life. It took longer for Melanie to be freed. And she described her position as folded like a sandwich. I mean, that oh. does not sound comfortable to me. No. Uh, I mean, being trapped is bad enough, but ugh. Her religious experience was that she believed she was freed by a guardian angel. I mean, who knows? They still have no idea how she got out. But she said she felt um, a warm hand on her, and then she was just out. And they never were able to identify her rescuer or find any account of how she was freed. So she believed she was freed by a guardian angel. And she actually became a Greek Orthodox nun and is to this day. Isn't that wild? Yes. So interesting. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. So those are two pretty interesting religious experiences that I found out about when I was reading this and that they had were by sisters. I thought that was super interesting. And they both went into totally different. I mean, Rachel stayed Lutheran and Melanie became a Greek Orthodox nun. So super interesting. But hmm. there is that. Okay. So we're going to move on to the aftermath and the investigation. Obviously, the aftermath was hundreds of injuries, huge loss of life. Tons of traumatic, traumatized first responders and witnesses. But, of course, they had to have an investigation and figure out what happened. Yeah. And do you know anything about the investigation, Mary? I or, don't. Or what the cause was? Okay. There were actually two investigations. One was by the Kansas City Star, and they ended up winning a Pulitzer Prize for their investigation and reporting on this. So go them. I did just see yeah, I did just see that note, but I didn't I didn't read any further because I knew you were going to tell me about it. Okay. And the other investigation was the uh, official one by the National Bureau of Standards, which is who does that kind of thing when there's a building structure failure. So the Kansas City Star hired an architectural engineer named Wayne G. Lishka to look into it. And the NSB investigation was headed by a guy named Edward Frang. Um, but both investigatory efforts were somewhat stymied by the Hallmark people not letting them see the wreckage. Ooh, not great. It's so, not a good look, Hallmark. Yeah, it's not a good look. Wayne Lishka did get in to see the wreckage, but they wouldn't let him view it up close at all. So, but fortunately, he had a photographer with a telephoto lens and was still able to get some good photos. And one of those photos, or a few of them perhaps, of a certain part of the skywalks called the box beam was kind of really important in their investigation and we'll get to that so the um the nsb didn't get to look at it at all until it had been moved to another location okay wait how is that legal that's a great question a, i'm not sure they actually t had to take them to court the nsb had to take the hallmark people to court to get access to the debris oh, and they obviously won while that kind of court battle was going on Kansas City Star, Wayne Lishka went down to the courthouse where the project's blueprints were on file because he was like, I can't get to the debris, but I can get to the blueprints. And there was even a delay in that, but he finally did get them. And that was kind of the smoking gun because the original blueprints showed a design for the walkways, which was different than what was actually built. And oh. the blueprint design was a good design and what was actually built was not. So the, he knew this is where things had to, to be wrong where things had to have gone wrong and, and his investigation and the nsb's investigation eventually concluded that he was correct about that so the original design called for these long continuous rods to come from the ceiling and connect to the second and fourth floor walkways so the ceiling would be bearing the weight of both walkways 
but what they did instead at some point was to change the design to be two shorter rods at each connecting point so that the ceiling was bearing the weight of the fourth floor walkway only and the fourth floor walkway was bearing the 64,000 pound weight of the second floor walkway. It was a weak and faulty design. It was bound to fail. And it was eventually proven through the investigations that there was absolutely no way that the fourth floor walkway could hold the weight of the second floor walkway continuously, especially with people on both walkways. And mm -hmm. so the box beams, which is what they got pictures of, Wayne Lishka and his photographer got pictures of, were proven to have dramatically failed. And Edward Frang, the NSB uh, investigator guy, said, just looking at the box beam, you know, you have to shake your head and say, I sure wouldn't do it that way. From the day they were put up, they were a disaster waiting to happen. Wow. Yeah. Understatement of the year. But so that so basically like Hallmark Crown Center was Redevelopment Corporation was found liable. The chief engineer, Jack Gillum, lost his license. Um, he said himself, he later reflected, Jack Gillum, the chief engineer, that the design flaw was so obvious that any, and I'm using quotes here, any first-year engineering student could figure it out if only it had been checked. So how did it, how did it come to be? Like, I've read a couple, even... yes, I've read a couple different conflicting things. Um, they say that at some point uh, the change was requested for cosmetic reasons. So I guess they wanted those box beams to kind of cover the rods. Okay. And, you know, someone signed off on it without doing the math, basically. And it cost the lives of 114 people and huge trauma to the others who were injured and first responders, like I've talked about. So, of course, there was big old lawsuits, as there should have been. And eventually, all the victims and families got $140 million settlement to split, which is equivalent to $417 million today. And the hotel owner, Crown Center Redevelopment Corporation, is who had to pay that out. So, Hallmark, what kind of greeting card do you make for, I'm sorry that I crushed yourself or your family members to death because of yeah faulty engineering so there were definitely say, maybe that's why greeting cards cost so dang much <laughs> the price so went up exponentially cost. after 1981 yeah. there's a reason for that Oy. so mm. as i said before we did learn a lot from this disaster one of the key things was check the calculations on any plan changes thanks mm. chief engineer jack gillum for saying that but actually the world responded to this disaster like the engineering world by upgrading the culture and academic curriculum, even at universities, um, engineering ethics, it really affected emergency management responses. For instance, I've heard that the Surfside condo collapse, which has just occurred recently in Florida, the emergency response to that was greatly informed by the emergency response to this. So mm -hmm. that's kind of cool that they were able to learn from it and figure out what to do better. Um, so another, a big change after this disaster was that the American Society of Civil Engineers adopted a very clear policy that actually is so clear that it carries legal weight in court, mm. that structural engineers like the aforementioned Jack Gillum are now ultimately responsible for reviewing any shop drawings like fabricators, by fabricators and changing and any changes that come to those drawings and signing off on them before the changes are put into actual construction. So that's good. Um, 
They also improved their standards of peer review, sponsored seminars and created trade manuals for the improvement of professional standards and public confidence. And Kansas City itself, apart from the national organizations, Kansas City um, Codes Administration became its very own department, double its staff and dedicated a single engineer comprehensively to all aspects of each new building. So Kansas City was like, this is not going to happen again in our town. And I yeah. appreciate that. And I bet you do, too. Yes, I do. <laughs> because I do, you sure. live there right. and you go to these buildings, yes. although they, they did not replace the skywalks. So um, if you ever do go there, you will not encounter them because that, you know, they just decided to go ahead and set that aside. I, I feel like that's a good call. Yeah, same, same. So that is it. That is the Kansas City Hyatt Skywalk collapse how do you feel do you still want to be friends with me <laughs> will you ever come on my show again well i i'm gonna go cry now <laughs> <laughs> no i find it it is fascinating and actually as you were listing off people who were there i kept waiting for you to say a name that i recognized because I would imagine that like, it makes sense now that I've heard the whole story from you, it makes sense that my old boss who ran in like society circles and fundraising circles, um, that this would still have been something she thought of because I imagine some of the people that were our donors and sponsors and volunteers, even in the early and mid two thousands were people who were connected to or even could have been there. Sure. That's because, totally plausible. I mean, Kansas City is a big city, but it's not, I bet it still has a lot of small town feel. It's definitely not that big. It's definitely not that big. And interesting um, side note, you say, if I ever go to this building, and I have not been to this building, but as you were telling me the story, I Googled a picture of it and I was like, oh, duh. I know this building. It's iconic in the Kansas city skyline, because at the top of it, there is a circle that has been a restaurant. Yes. It was a restaurant that night. Yes. And so when I was in high school going to prom, like that was the fancy restaurant that if you had a really, um, romantic date or a rich date, that's where you went. You went to skies, you went to the peppercorn duck club. Um, you have known me for a while, so you will not be surprised to hear that my date, who's now my husband, did not take me there. <laughs> I'm, uh, not I'm so shocked. I can't believe yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> I cannot believe it. Um, yeah, so I have not been there. And now, I guess, so I was I was Googling a little bit. Uh, it's no longer Sky's Restaurant or Peppercorn Duck Club, but I saw all these pictures because last December, just a few months ago, they set it up as a pop-up Christmas winter wonderland restaurant date night experience. That's fun. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it would be so cool to go to that because you have the best view of Kansas City and they made it so sparkly and festive and pretty. But now that I've been reminded uh, of this story. I hope I haven't pre-ruined sure. this for you. Yeah. Yeah, you may have. So my husband thanks you. Oh, you're welcome, Mark. Always here to help. Here to help. Yes. Yes. That, but yeah, that building is 
Yeah. Everybody who lives in Kansas City recognizes that building, even if they don't realize it like I did Even if they don't know the name. Well, it was the Hyatt and now it's the Sheraton. And the Peppercorn Duck Club was was the name of the restaurant that night. Not the revolving one, but the other one. And Mm -hmm. that's the Peppercorn Duck Club is, I believe, where that surgeon was eating who tried to save poor Jeff Durham. So can you imagine you're just, I mean, eating dinner and then I just can't like. And and also people in that, like I mentioned being trapped is one of my nightmares, but like people in the restaurant and in the hotel, mm-hmm. just in their rooms were trapped there for hours. They couldn't, they couldn't leave until either they had to be evacuated down the stairs and out a back door or, mm-hmm. you know, they, they had to stay put. So it wow. is, it is so well that this happened in the Midwest and middle America in 1981. And like, I, who love a good disaster story, had never heard about it until recently yeah. so i just want these people to re- be remembered and i want the uh, the yeah. changes i want you know the caveat mm-hmm. to not be forgotten i guess and yeah so i probably eventually will do the surfside condo collapse but in a lot of the articles that'll be in the show notes here i heard not only the disaster response kind of uh intertwined with the with the skywalk story but also kind of it being compared to it so mm-hmm. There, that investigation is still ongoing, though. So there, it's not even done yet. So, Wow. Yeah. So feel good time, Mary. Let's talk about something great to end our time together, like where uh, my listeners can find you. Oh, that is great. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Um, on social media, I am at Mary Carver. My website's marycarver.com. And like I said, you can find me talking about much happier topics um, than this on my podcast, The Couch with Mary Carver. But sometimes we do get serious. You get serious, but never like super dark, which I'm trying not to be super dark. I mean, okay, here's a connection. Sometimes we talk about Hallmark movies. Yes, that's another thing I wanted to, I wanted the people to know that you love Hallmark. Oh, I do. I do love Hallmark. And actually, I, I, I am a contractor for Dayspring, which is a uh, like the Christian division of Hallmark. Yeah, so, so is, is this a huge conflict of interest or can I, am I going to be able to publish this episode? I mean, just like, don't let the Hallmark people know. <laughs> okay. They're probably <laughs> not going to listen to this one. They've, they've settled their debts. They're like, they've forgotten all about it. Oh, they want people to forget about yes, it. They do. They're probably not going to like, just don't listen guys. Okay. Yeah. Everybody, but Hallmark, listen, please. But Hallmark people go about your business. Just, just mind your own and everyone else listen to this, listen to all the episodes yeah. and listen to, listen to the couch. You'll find me on the couch a lot. Yes. That's literally true. and figuratively. Yes. <laughs> on yes podcast. So yeah, we, we've known each other for a million years. We met through blogging like a hundred years ago, approximately so long ago. You are the first blogging person I met in real life because I stopped amazing. you. That is amazing. And yeah. you're my, and then you're my podcast guru. So I feel like we've really, we've come full circle with this. So, I mean, we are evolving. I think that's what I'll say. One day we're going to like have maybe a podcast about like menopause or elder care issues. <laughs> right. It's coming. It, it's happening. <laughs> After we're done parenting these teenagers. Right. Yes, maybe, please. Maybe please one don't day we can have... Off. Maybe one day we can have a podcast for hot grandmas. Anyway, this is getting a little out of control. But thank you, my disaster dreamers, for sticking with me through this story. And thank you, Mary, for still being my friend. 
Yes. Thank you for inviting me. Put a big damper on your day. Everybody go listen to Mary's podcast. And she has a really fun Facebook group that you can join too. I don't have a Facebook group for this podcast yet, but Mary does the couch. And it's very fun. So she keeps you like really posted on what you need to be watching. So it's important when you don't have time to find out for yourself, which I don't. So I rely on her heavily. That's right. I got you. You're doing a good service, Mary. Okay. All right. We're going to go ahead and sign off. Thank you for joining us. Please rate and review this podcast so others can find it. It would mean the world to me. And if you have a story suggestion, please email me at disasterqueen at gmail.com. Or I'm sorry, disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. And you can find me also on Instagram at disasterqueenpod and Twitter at the same. So I hope to hear from you soon. And I hope to see you back in two weeks. Thanks, Mary. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. The Disaster Queen podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, the Disaster Queen. Original theme music and sound engineering by Robert Rapson. Editing is by Josh Rapson. You can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com. Original podcast artwork is by Ken Clark. And disasterqueen.com website design is by Hello Chicky Design. Check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs. All show notes can be found at disasterqueen.com. Got an episode suggestion? Email me at disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at disasterqueenpod on Instagram and at disasterqpod on Twitter.